Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Spoiler Warning Podcast. This is review number 666 with a review of The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. I'm Christopher Schneezy. And I'm Stephen Miller. And if you're joining us for the first time, the Spoiler Warning Podcast is a weekly film review program. Each week in the show, we're going to dive in, debate, discuss, and argue over the latest films coming to a streaming platform near you. Um, this week, this film, uh, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, came to a little streaming platform known as HBO Max. And uh, for anybody who's trying to get caught up in the series, um, both the original Conjuring films are currently available on Netflix, so they can be streamed there. Um, but yeah, we're going to be talking about this film. Obviously, there was no other film we could review for our 666th episode other than a film that has reference to the devil in the title. I mean... Yeah, probably the most like overtly Christian horror movie, at least that I've... like scene in a while just the whole franchise like the degree to which they stare into this is the devil and demons <laughs> <laughs> so it's fitting yeah any possession film happens to bring in a priest to do an exorcism if possible but this is like the one film that centers around characters who seem to gain their power from being a uh, man and woman of god um the couple of ed and and uh lorraine warren um so so yeah I, I would i would say so there's lots of lots of talk of how god brought them together um you know they do more with their crosses than just uh <laughs> press them to demons heads like some right. people do <laughs> They, they read their Bible for fun, even when they maybe doze off and have nightmares and <laughs> desecrate it. Yeah, and then they keep that Bible even after they desecrated mm. it, just because I'm sure one day it will come in handy. Right. I mean, the Bible is like the flag. Like, you don't, you can't burn it. You can't get rid of it. You gotta, <laughs> gotta keep it around. And because you can't roll it or fold it nicely, you just have to carry it around with you. Yeah. And then maybe one day it'll help you with a game of hangman. Yeah. <laughs> So that works on multiple levels because he had Ed hanging out the window. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but anyways, we're here to talk about um, this film, but also sort of the series as a whole, because I got really excited when I realized that we were coming up on the 666 episode and that I had an excuse that Steven could not back away from to make him watch another horror film just because thematically it worked out so well. Um, so the two of us collectively... Uh, for me, rewatched, <laughs> and for Steven, first time enjoyed, <laughs> maybe enjoyed <laughs> um, the 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 primary part of the series of the Conjuring films. Um, so, Steven, to start us off, um, do you want to give us a little bit of your thoughts on sort of the the first and uh, second Conjuring films? Yeah, totally. So. It, it it has been well established. I've done enough of these for you. I probably don't need to preface anymore that I do not enjoy horror movies. <laughs> I don't enjoy being scared because it works on me too well. In all likelihood, during our recording, at least once, I will be terrified of what is in the dark hallway behind me. Um, that's just how I am. And particularly what I dislike is jump scares, is the mechanics of when a movie just makes your adrenaline pump out of nowhere, the, the like it knows it has you and you know, it has you and you know, the moment is coming, but the camera is just slowly <laughs> moving, like wreaking everything it can out of that fucking long moment before a jump happens. And yeah, yeah. What is happening behind you is creepy. I saw it too. <laughs> I was less scared and more worried about the audio, but uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> So for, for those who cannot see this, uh, it is a very windy evening in San Francisco, and Christopher's, uh, 
curtains were blowing and casting a kind of like shadow that was billowing on the wall behind him while I knocked, which I did not like one bit, even from a distance. <laughs> and anyway, like to, the mechanics of a jump scare work really well on me and I do not find it pleasant at all. It kind of can ruin my day if I get, if I have to sit through so many of those, because what they do is they make it so the real world, you are waiting for a jump scare now. Like you're in your mind when you turn a dark corner or enter the bathroom before the light switch is turned on, you are waiting for the thing that will just like happen to scare you. And it isn't like a fear of a thing. Um, like we can get into it in this preface or in the review proper, but I do not believe in demons in any sense. I have no fear of the demonic or of the spiritual, anything. Like, I don't. And my brain, even after watching these movies, there isn't even a part of it that is like, but what if I believe it? Like, I'm not afraid of the thing. <laughs> what I'm afraid of is the mechanic of seeing a thing that will terrify me. Like, that is what I'm afraid of. And yeah. when a movie like this makes me not be able to sleep, it's because I am laying in bed thinking... What if I felt something pull the sheets off? <laughs> Fuck, that would be so terrifying. I hope it doesn't happen. Um, all that to say, this movie, this series of movies, is pretty much built around the jump scare. Like, unabashedly. This is, I think this is kind of the opposite of Ari Aster's approach to horror, where he is all about the the slow-building creepy the lingering thing that it doesn't even need to rely on a jump scare you it is just like building a feeling of being unnerved the whole time yeah and and i think part of that is he wants it to sit with you he wants horror to be a metaphor for something and these movies do not want horror to be a metaphor for jack shit these movies want to <laughs> it's a metaphor for the wind devil. You, yeah <laughs> they want to wind you up and scare you as many times as possible and the first Conjuring movie is, like, just that bag of tricks over and over again. And I thought it was extremely well done. Like, I liked is a strong word because I do not enjoy watching these kinds of <laughs> movies. But it was very effective. Like, I I can see why it became a phenomenon because it it comes from clearly... I don't want to say clearly low budget because it looks great. Um, but it is a stripped-down thing that James Wan is using... All of the tools at his disposal have been done before. He's like replaying the hits, but the way he does it, like the way he moves the camera and he basically embodies the exact fear I described of being afraid to turn the corner because you don't know what is there. Like the camera is so present in these movies in a way that I thought was really, really, really effective and entertaining. And I finally got the sense of being terrified, but as an amusement park ride, like of finding joy in being terrified. Um, so I get it. Like, I think the first movie is really well done. And the trick that it does is it, it doesn't show you the bad guy, at least not until very late in the movie. It knows that the scariest thing is not seeing something terrifying, but being bracing yourself for impact. And there are a few points in the movie where it, even when a terrifying thing happens, pans to show you the child that is watching it instead of the thing, because that is what James Wan is manipulating for you yeah. is the fear. Like he wants you to feel terrified. And the, these whole like haunted houses or possessed houses are perfect for that because they're creaky. They're old. Um, these are set in like period times too, in the seventies. So you know that 
a lot of the conveniences you might have had, like a cell phone or, you know, something that you could use to shine a light or capture a video or call a person for help no longer is there. Everything is very analog in a way that is still scary. Um, And it's extremely effective. We were talking right before recording. I think that hide and clap, hide and go clap, whatever they call that game, (laughs) uh, ill-advised, though it may be in a worn down old house that is haunted especially when you haven't lived in for forever exactly yeah um i wouldn't do that in a new place uh but it is such an effective simple minimalist way to terrify you and i think that pretty much sums up the first movie is it it does a lot with a little and even though none of it is new it felt like it was played the exact right way um and i think that's cool i get that um the second Conjuring movie felt like the aliens to the first one's alien, where it is like, now we are going to go big. Now we are going to like really just dig into this. And it's still going to try to scare you, but it isn't going to be minimal anymore. It is going to throw multiple baddies at you at the same time. It is going to have like a bigger cast. It's going to have more things occurring in parallel. Uh, it's going to have humor among other things. Like it's going to throw more jokes. It is going to be more overtly like exorcisty. And I still thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it was like a fun roller coaster ride and it was not nearly as scary as the first, but like, I get it. It's fun. I think that's enough for how I feel about those two. Like, I think they're fun. I think the conjuring series is a fun series. And if I were someone who enjoyed being terrified, I would have had a blast watching them in theaters as someone who was laying in bed two nights in a row, feeling like (laughs) the blanket move on my feet. uh, I was pretty angry that the movie planted a fear of someone hitting my feet as a demonic presence. (laughs) I I don't love that. um, But I think it is clever. Yeah, I I think I think, um, you know, I I, I went back and re-listened to our uh, a review is uh, mine and Carson's review of The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2. And I, I think one of the funny things I was telling you before this episode got started is those reviews all started with us trying to remember what took place in The Conjuring series versus the Insidious series <laughs> versus, uh, you know, all all the other series is series. Um, <laughs> and and it, w- it was at times it was hard to remember what came from where. Um, but the one thing that is really easy to uh, remember is that what what sort of sets this series apart from others is that um, in most of these horror films, you have people encountering a thing, then they realize they need help, then they go out and try to get the help of the church or um, contact a demonologist online who does a big exposition dump and gives them that information. Um, and then the film progresses as it was. This film is sort of flipping the script in that the center characters of the story are Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are the demonologists. The story is always being told from their point of view, and you are getting the exposition across the entire film, and you are watching a world in which these two people do this for a living. So you get the, the, you get the, the fun aspect of the story in that it's not like... You know, there are a few different spinoffs that have come out of the series, but it doesn't feel like just a plain cash grab because these films establish their spinoffs 
in the cold open of the of the films like the films are like hey here's this other character in this world and they always end with uh you know like the, the indiana jones uh hiding the thing away in the, the warehouse of all all the yeah. uh the artifacts but what's weird too is they they open without fail with what seems like it would be the more obvious plot of the movie like all three of them the thing they open with is like oh that is the horror movie plot right like yeah like annabelle the amityville house um a like rampant exorcism that we'll get into like it, it is an interesting decision and i get it now that it is an extended universe but i wonder the first time around why they did that like yeah. that, that is an interesting choice that they made well it, it it does establish that there is a broader world in general well part part of it is a that these are all supposed to be based on a true story and they're all you know, Ed and Lorraine Warren are real people who yeah, do something. We will definitely get into that in the third movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so they they are real people that exist in real life. Um, they they uh, examine paranormal phenomenon around the world as or they did as their real works. And e each of the films in this series are at least related to a case that did exist. <laughs> um, the films are mostly fictitious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and are all, all just sort of like let's make a horror film but well it, it, it's it's basically the same as uh that film it might have been called the box um about a girl who finds a dybbuk box and uh i believe that that was a story that was like literally taken from like a listing on like ebay or somebody where somebody is trying to sell a curse box and somebody's like that's a great idea for a thing and then they made an entire movie centered around this quote real life story of this like curse box not guaranteed of the yeah, horror universe yeah exactly exactly um uh so this film has that but i th i think that uh i kind of forgot my point but i think that the point i was trying to say um was that we always are existing in a broader world where where it's it's they're saying it's based on real life and we're seeing that there are so many more cases that this couple has gone on and we are always knowing that there is more like this would be a really fun anthology series on like Amazon or something right where you're like tuning in weekly to see whatever the new case the Warrens are going to get into um, and I think that that aspect to it adds to the uh, experience of going to see a Conjuring film um, plus for me I really really enjoy like that world building of of the characters that we're following being the ones who have the information and their willingness to dismiss any occurrence that they see. Like it's in, in another film, it might be like, Oh my God, my child was on the roof. And then the priest comes in and is like, we got to do an exorcism. And in this film, they're like, all right, first we got to prove that this actually is happening because we are not allowed to do exorcisms ourselves. Even though in every film, it ends with them going like, yeah, Fuck every it. single movie ends with them doing the exorcism. <laughs> But I mean, to be fair, like they do like the opening crawl for the first movie does say like, hey, like Ed is literally the only person that is like allowed to participate in exorcisms, according to like the Vatican or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> the only the only non ordained priest or non priest uh, who's able to participate. So it's like he he knows what he's doing. He's seen enough of these that like you can I mean, always I, I don't want to get too much of a jump on our review for the third movie. But I did laugh in like the the opening thing. In the third movie, it opens with an exorcism taking a place and a plate hits the, the priest in the head and Ed has to take over. Yeah, like, yeah. You, you guys are so shameless about Ed having to be the one to do it. Um, but yeah, so, so, so I, I, I think that the idea of this series is very, very fun. And while I think 
the overall quality of the narrative might have sunk a little bit in in um, the second film, at least based on re-listening to my opinion of the second film in real time uh, back then. Um, I will say that the look and the presentation of the second film ramps everything up. I mean, for, as you said, for good or for ill, um, it, it's there's you know the camera is doing more interesting things like there's a scene where like the camera passes through all the rooms as all the people are like getting settled into their different space and like goes through windows to see action in different places um there is like one of my favorite shots in any horror film which we briefly text about um after i rewatched the second one of the um the little seance they do where they're talking to the entity in the chair and it's just behind out of focus um brilliant amazing shot especially i mean i mean we got we got some of it with if you were watching in headphones but i think like being in the theater and feeling that booming voice coming and just watching that like one shot of him like talking from behind brilliant brilliant um there's a, a an amazing shot um of the the crooked man jumping into the wall and then traveling as a crack through the house yep. and then popping out like there are some amazing shots that make me love the second film for what it's doing visually um but i think that the story was a little overly convoluted <laughs> and i think uh by the end of the first two films i feel like it's a big 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 ramp up and then somebody's like your name is this <laughs> and right. then everything's done martha um, <laughs> yeah why are you saying that name <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I felt this like basically the the first movie was all about the build up, and then when it does become The Exorcist, it feels really earned, right? Because you spent the last ninety minutes watching this family. Also, I'm just gonna say, like having you know uh, Ron Livingston, like that family at the beginning is just they are so much more fun to watch than I think the family in the second movie, just in terms of charisma and having personality types and everything. Yeah. Um, and that movie, it feels earned when it hits that third act triumph. Movie number two is like all third act and I'm kind of here for it, but it is very different from what I was expecting from a horror movie. To yeah. be. They were kind of like, look, you get it. You believe in demons already. We don't need to beat around the bush. We're just going to show <laughs> you the bad creature right away. <laughs> Man, w- one thing that's really funny going back and listening to those old reviews in my review of the first one, one of the things I complained about is the fact that that film starts with this knowledge that Lorraine had some vision that she's never told Ed about. Um, and like, it's, it's the, the fog of this vision is like over the entire series where it's like, what did she see? What does it mean? Why is Ed so scared to potentially lose her? Um, and, and I was complaining that they never bring that back. <laughs> but of course, at the time I didn't have the knowledge that in the second film, it was going to play a major role <laughs> in right. what was going on. Um, so yep. I, I thought that was pretty funny, like having rewatched them recently and then going back in time and listening to my opinion of that film being like, man, what's up with this shit? And then I'm like, oh, that's clever. That's clever. Even though I'm sure it was after the fact that they decided to bring that back. Um, but yeah, I do. I do want to say, by the way, MVP of being possessed is Lily Taylor as the mom in The Conjuring, the original one. Yeah, she she it gets legitimately terrifying by the end. And I'm I'm here for it. I do think I, before we jump into our review of the movie that was just released, uh, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. I do want to talk a little bit about the based on a true story aspect, because it 
it is a really interesting part of the draw. Uh, the thing these movies do to, I think, great effect is in the end credits, splice in photos of the, quote, real thing yeah. along with the fake thing. It is never quite clear which is which because they're also staging the actors in a way that looks like the, quote, real photo would have. Um Honestly, for the first Conjuring, I can't even tell because the whole premise is this is the story that the Warrens didn't want to tell you. And so I don't know how much is even in the, quote, record of the claim of haunting at the time. Well, um, so so for the first Conjuring, I believe I was trying to do like a little bit of research. Um, and I believe that the Warrens were actually a big part of making the first film. So I think they were much more in touch then compared to now. <laughs> they're dead <laughs> just just ed's dead right i think lorraine died uh, like a year or two ago too uh, okay gotcha um then uh the, i mean who knows maybe they <laughs> maybe they're fully a part of, of making the film now yeah uh yeah but it, it anyway what is interesting about it is a it's barely based on the true story. You know, yeah. uh, we're going to get into it in the third movie. It is kind of comical how much it manages to not be based on the true story. Um, kind of like a cheat code for using that phrase. Yeah. Um, but also, like, the interesting thing about this universe is it, again, it's based on real people who were real, quote, demonologists who explored these supernatural quote phenomenon and made lucrative book and lecture lives basically like talking about this thing and by all accounts again i i don't want to be the douchebag skeptic or whatever but if i look at the reality of the world they're basically two hucksters right like the two they're the people who go on like the history channel with like night vision goggles and say like, Oh my God, did you see the door move over there? Like that is them. <laughs> like <laughs> That is who they are benefiting from a time before the ubiquity of cameras and everything where it was much easier to do that kind of thing convincingly. And I had that slight criticism when I was watching the conjuring, the first one of like, come on, you're really taking their word for it. But if we think rationally, like what are the odds if there were a demon or a ghost, an inhuman creature, they would only act based on like symbolic gestures that already existed in movies at the time, like a sheet <laughs> flying in a certain way or levitating a, you know, like what are the odds that that is how the world actually works when it is also how, you know, we invented in the exorcist. <laughs> the, oh, oh, real fast. Sorry. I, I know you're making a point, but you just reminded me of the sheet thing. One thing this series does that I really, really love is there are a few repeated moments where things travel based on space um like like they travel through other objects so i already talked about uh the the crooked man jumping into the walls and flying a, a crack around the building but with the sheet there's a scene where the wind kicks up in the first i think it's the first conjuring where mm -hmm. she is like trying to take down blankets a blanket gets away from her hits a form that was not standing there then the form dissolves and the sheet goes up into the window where the form now is in the room that the that the sheet blew into right love it or or like the nun where the shadow of the nun walks along the wall and walks right. to the painting of the nun and then comes out from the painting yeah. and Great. then also the, the 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 crosses flipping upside down against the walls yeah. as they walk to the shadow part of the wall i love all of that stuff yeah all great visuals and great for a movie and yet in the world where the warrens many of these things they were claiming actually happened 
extra ridiculous if your argument is this is real because like why would a demon need to physically be in a sheet as it flies and hits a window so it can possess a thing right like obviously the mechanism the mechanism betrays the fact that this is bullshit right (laughs) so so here's here's one of the things that like i I, i've been trying to think about the series in in like one of the things you mentioned is some things can be like less scary and just kind of goofy, right? Or mm-hmm. or we're watching things where like the scariest thing in the world happens for the people in the room and then it just cuts to somewhere else and we don't know how that situ- situation revolves. <laughs> I'm laughing as Steven <laughs> whips his head around to look to the shadow behind it. Not shadow, but the yep. the darkness of in the closet over there. Um but anyways, <clears throat> um like we'll we'll see a moment of intensity or a jump scare where you see like the little scary thing and then it just cuts away and that's gone you're like well how does that scene resolve the thing jumped on top of her was it not trying to hurt her one of the things that this film is trying to state is that the things these demonic entities do because they can't actually pass forward onto our plane at the moment that they're trying to do this stuff is they are beating down your will by trying to scare you with these moments. So these aren't demons who are trying to physically hurt the people. They are trying to scare them through their actions. So yes, the person does a scary like, and then jumps on top of the, the, the child and then disappears. Um, but that's just because the fright is what is intended, not the actual hurting of the child. So you can make the argument that it's dumb to use a sheet to travel up to the window, but you want to scare the person and then give them a visual reference to how you're getting to a spot that they're going to need to go take an action at. Um, so, so like you could make the argument that these demons are using these visually intriguing uh, metaphors for their d- 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 demonic presence um, specifically to achieve their goal of wearing down the psyches of their victims. Sure. I, I mean, that's what, like, the text of the vigil was, for instance, the yeah. uh, the Jewish horror film that we watched. Here, though, you need to think about who it's doing it to. Like, these mechanisms are true even when it is in the presence of Ed and Lorraine as they battle the demon, right? Like, it, it is, like, still bound by these odd, semi-physical... I think one of the movies, like they shoot a demon with a shotgun like like there's weird things that happen in these, <laughs> no, the, in these movies the demon grabs the shotgun they put it they put the shotgun down because they don't think they'll need it against a demon and then uh the demon grabs the shotgun with telekinesis <laughs> okay yeah yeah that's right um yeah anyway i'll all, all I was saying, and this was part of my self care as I watched these movies was telling myself all the reasons that this wouldn't be real even in a world where the supernatural was possible um and and that juxtaposed with the fact that the movies play so much on the real story is interesting i think the trick works best in the conjuring 2 where for one thing the case is way more well documented like at least in the uk the uh enfield house or whatever was pretty well known um and the best case and what made me think of it was you were talking about your favorite scene in that movie of the the girl talking in the background while the camera depth of field is such that like it is all blurred out back there and you're only seeing Ed Warren's face. Um, and then in the credits of the movie, they play the actual tape, like the actual tape that Ed Warren really did take of yeah. the girl talking. And it lets you kind of draw your own conclusions, you know, but the movie also way more than the first conjuring and way more than the one we're going to talk about talks about skepticism a lot where there yeah. are multiple characters who are skeptics in it. It acknowledges things that were faked 
you know, including faked by characters, um, things that the movie plants that in my brain, I was like, hey, no, that wouldn't be real. Like, why would a spoon get bent? It then shows you, yeah, this is why, because your skepticism was correct here. And I thought that was a lot of fun. Like, I thought the movie was, the Sears is really fun when it is like thumbing its nose at you in the whole skeptical department. Yeah. Um, and what? we'll see if it goes too far in the third one. <laughs> so my question for you then about all the parts that are really, really fun um, uh, and skepticism do you think a demon would really talk in half of the words of a sentence in one experience and then half of the words in a second sentence so that you could play them at the same time to get the full message? Hey, I don't know why demons do that. I mean, if you believe this shit, you also believe in like numerology and that like messages are hidden in like the number written somewhere. And yeah, did you ever you, you probably I, I don't know if you grew up in a family that would have done this, but I definitely had relatives that believed a lot in like some of the biblical numerology things where it's like, if you circle the first word of every verse in the book of blah, 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 it spells a message for why the world is going to end in 1992 or whatever. Um, If you're like, that is the kind of people that the Warrens are like IRL. Um, And if you're that kind of people, sure. Demon talks two different places and you're supposed to splice the audio together to hear a message. Like, yeah, they just fuck with you. That's what, you know, all of the supernatural <laughs> is here to like hide little puzzles for you to figure out and write a book about. <laughs> yeah. Um, one more thing uh, to talk about uh, with, with the second film is I, I think like the description on IMDb, which I have IMDb open right now, but not to that film. So I'm just going to go by memory. I swear like the description says something about, somebody uh, a young girl accidentally unleashing something that begins to torment her family um the -hmm. film starts with the daughters trying to play with a ouija board but they never actually contact anybody so it's just weird that like the ouija board is there they try to play with it the description of the film says that that a daughter unwittingly unleashes something on her family but the film never sees her make contact with the the thing. Well, when the daughter is showing it to her sister, she is saying that it works, that she did it before. True. So I think the movie, it is interesting that the movie doesn't just show you the time she did it and it worked. But yeah. I think the subtext is that like she is lonely and she's been doing a lot of things for peer pressure that her terrible friend Camilla makes her do, like smoke a cigarette or play with a Ouija board. <laughs> like the uh, like the other daughter in the first film who likes to talk to her little friend in the mirror box. <laughs> oh, God. The mirrors, the use of mirrors in these movies is like so good and so uncomfortable. It really, like I was just thinking about the mirror box and uh, the, the kid, uh, Rory appearing there. Like I, I literally just got chills saying the name Rory. Like, yeah. fuck, I don't, I don't want to see him in the mirror. And, um, and, and we, we've talked about how this series as it goes on has to progress upwards as far as stakes. It's not technically a mirror, but there's definitely mirror visuals that are being played with in this third film that, uh, oh, yeah. were, were, were pretty interesting. Yep. Well, We've been stalling enough. We've done like almost a full runtime worth of episode here from talking about the first films. What do you say, Stephen? We get into uh, our review of The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Sure. All right. We're going to take a listen to the trailer for this film, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to give you this review. Hey. You okay there? Jesus. I think I hurt someone. 
this is Ed Warren, here with Lorraine. All right, let's get started. Residents of Brookfield were shocked this afternoon by the broad daylight murder of Bruno Sauls. The court accepts the existence of God every time a witness swears to tell the truth. I think it's about time they accept the existence of the devil. Whatever is going on, whatever happened that day, that was not Arnie. It's a witch's totem. We think your family was cursed. And that connection's still broken. I'm only interested in reality. But I can see things that your people can't. Something terrible happened here. Master Satan is not an adversary to be taken lightly. She's doing it again. She's reaching out to the darkness. Lorraine, you need to come back. You're saving him worth everything you have. Because that's what it may very well cost. So that was the trailer for The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Um, in this film, we are forgoing the random other demonic thing that happens at the beginning of the film, and we're jumping in right to follow all the characters that are going to be involved in the story. This particular case that the, uh, you know, the Warrens were, I guess, somewhat related to existing um, was the first case in the United States in which um, somebody who was on trial for murder used the defense that the devil made them do it. And this is the story of the events leading up to that killing and uh, the events following that killing. And I guess the resolve of the trial, even though it's weird the way they put the little what actually happened at the, the end of the film. We'll talk about that later. Um, but anyways, Stephen Miller, what did you think of The Conjuring? The devil made me do it. So I need to express here that I watched these movies out of order. I watched The Conjuring then I watched The Devil Made Me Do It. And then after watching it, I was like, okay, now I need to fucking watch the second movie just to understand how these connect. The reason I had to do that is because the moment The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It began, I was like, what happened to this series? This is so much more silly and ridiculous <laughs> than the first movie. <laughs> like, I needed to find the missing link to understand how it how it went from genuinely scary haunted house into a Marvel movie, basically. Like, Ed, Ed and Lorraine are superheroes. <laughs> it, it's Constantine and Scarlet Witch um, going around 
solving problems together using their like harry potter wizard powers to commute with voldemort and figure out what he's gonna do so they can find the horcrux like it it, it is You're just so different <laughs> yeah it, it it is just such a far cry from the first movie uh, and conjuring 2 really is like the missing link between those two like you it really does blend both of them in a way that is interesting i i will say though you cannot forget that uh in the first conjuring ed definitely does like a barrel roll away from a dresser that's about to fall on him so he was definitely pulling action star moves in that oh, first yeah, film. No. <laughs> he he was he was an action star, a reluctant action star, but he was. Yeah, and um, in the Conjuring Two, he was basically Hawkeye <laughs> at the yeah. end. Like right off right off the bat, uh, the Conjuring: The Devil Made Me Do It opens with an exorcism. Uh, the exorcism in question is related to the legal proceeding here. Uh, it basically is like a the possession before the possession. I don't know how much yeah. we're allowed was, to talk about that. Or, we'll just call it an exorcism. Yeah, yeah, or the the prequel. I I don't have a good pun for that. <laughs> um, anyway, the, we open with it, and it is way more right. It basically opens with the last scene of The Exorcist. Like it opens with everything is crazy, person is levitating and contorting, mad shit is going down, and they say, "I know, let's move into the place with all the plates and knives." <laughs> um, which, <laughs> I just feel like if I were a seasoned, you know, demon fighting duo, I would probably stay in the room with nothing to fly at you rather than in the place with sharp objects everywhere. Uh, but, that, but that's just me. Um, well, I mean, to, to be fair, though, Stephen, you need a large wooden surface, something hard to be able to pin the person down. If you try to do it like on a bed, there's a lot of give and take. They could like, that's you true, know, yeah. shake their weight and knock people off of them. It's just harder to do. If you have a big like family table, you know, family dining room table. Um, yeah, sure. There's plates and knives and stuff around there, but you need that hard surface. That, like, no, something like an altar. <laughs> to, right. Yeah. To that would really on. be ideal. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. So way more ridiculous right off the bat. Um, the premise of this movie I thought was really interesting in a kind of morally tricky way, because again, this is about, a procedural, a real thing that happened where a person who really murdered his landlord said he was possessed by a demon and Ed and Lorraine Warren basically backed up the claim, like came to the defense to claim that this was true. Um, the real world ethics of that are incredibly shady and incredibly <laughs> interesting well, to think about. <laughs> so are, are you are you defining them as shady given the world in which you don't believe that a possession would ever be able to happen or like in the, in, in this, like we, we as the watchers of this film believe the exorcism actually like the film is not like this film is right. not the, trying the to film posit has no whether, doubt about yeah, what happened. Yeah. So yeah. like in that yeah, world, I'm, I'm saying like, the real world, the real world that it is based on is very shady. And whereas in The Conjuring 2, they play with skepticism in a way, like choose to believe it or don't, you know, yeah. will even hint at like this photo of levitating could also be her jumping on the bed. And this, you know, this audio could also be this. This movie, if you allow yourself to be skeptical of the reality that the film presents, it is like actually quite unsettling what the Warren family does and potential ramifications <laughs> of that. Um in just a lot of ways. And I, I was interested in watching the movie examine this court case and go further in the skepticism department. And instead, the movie just says, nah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do none of that. We are going to tell you about the parallel story, 
while Arnie is awaiting trial of the witch and the horcruxes <laughs> and the um, <laughs> the magical adventure that our superhero duo goes on to prevent shit from being even worse than it wound up being IRL. Um, and I just thought that was very funny, very funny just right off the bat because it, it like completely avoids the based on a real story premise that these movies are supposed to have. Um, I don't know. I thought this movie was pretty stupid. I think that is my answer. I thought the movie was not very scary at all. I think some of it is just inherently the idea of like witches and curses is just not as scary as the idea of the demonic and the possessed and the subtly creepy house that you are in. Um, just the moment it is like Harry Potter versus Voldemort, it just becomes like ridiculous and not quite as uh, frightening to me. Uh, as I would have wanted. I also thought it just moved at a kind of crazy rapid pace. Like I am having trouble remembering the plot machinations in this movie because let's see, there's a period of time where Lorraine is basically Willem Dafoe and Boondock Saints saying like, it was a firefight. And she's like walking around <laughs> <laughs> a forest, <laughs> recreating all the bad things that happened. Yeah. Uh, we have like weird. It was a serial crusher yeah. guy. We have, like, weird drowned troll-type creatures that apparently physically exist in the physical reality of the universe as they are fighting. There wasn't a drowned troll. It was a corpse that was being animated by Voldemort. (laughs) Right. It it was a large, drowned-looking corpse. Um, like I, my theory, so the guy that directed this movie also did the curse of La Llorona. And my theory is that he just loves the idea of like water based hauntings because we have the waterbed. We have, uh, hands in a shower curtain. Uh, was that this movie? I think it was. Yeah. 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 Um, which basically like right out of La Llorona, right? Like I only saw the trailer of that, but same idea (laughs) is the hand suddenly (laughs) appearing. Um, we have multiple drowned corpse monsters, um, Anyway, that's just a side thought. But it, it just, it all felt way more wacky and fantasy-ish and not in a way that I thought built Dread particularly effectively. Um, they also have amped up, you know, they are now in the Furious 7 era of this franchise where they are no longer content to just, like, steal things and drive their cars. Now they are, like, saving the world. And in this case, Ed and Lorraine are, like, breaking into funeral homes and warging into the bad guy who wargs back into them and fight like it, it, it has just become a ridiculous ridiculous um, fight in a way that i don't know like like it was fine like maybe if i were in theaters i would have gotten more joy out of seeing all the insanity unfolding but i think a horror movie that is all gimmicks the way this is then also not scaring me in any way like i just don't know what the value is after that and that um i don't know that it it just didn't do a whole lot for me it's all right hard edit um where we wanted to talk directly about the ending of this film um but i I guess i'm gonna save it to to save on spoilers spoilers. yeah we we we, we, we can we'll move it to a spoiler conversation we'll re-pick it up um but yeah anyways did did you have ambiguous enough a point to keep to keep mentioning it like basically basically your whole point is that you think that these people who you believe are hucksters um <laughs> tried to get somebody off of a murder charge and that's super fucked up 
Yeah, well, and I think the movie that most begs the moral question of is it right what they are doing? What if they are wrong? How does skepticism play a role in here? How ought the rest of the world look at this? Is also the movie where they chose to go as far from that as humanly possible in terms of the plot of the movie they decided to make. And that kind of feels like a cop out to me. Like they could have done a really interesting procedural that like makes you feel like, ooh, I don't know. I don't know. This is so interesting i want to believe x but my heart says y and instead they're just like no you know they're going off and finding the horcruxes and that just felt like kind of a a cop-out for me in a way that made it not quite as morally troubling but it also felt um i don't know it, it just felt a little more gross that these movies are like making superheroes out of people that were probably really shitty irl and the more it deviates from the real stories the more it kind of feels weird that they don't just make these fake people who aren't based on real people <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean like their their whole selling point is that these are quote based on a true story they are they are winning or winning they're they're like winding their own fabric of what the actual story is and those are the characters they're they're selling us on like i have never uh, outside of the context of like what try for fun trying to figure out what aspect of the story is true um just to talk about on this podcast i've never really cared to look up the lives of the warrens outside of these films i like these characters but i like them you know you, you keep joking about it being a marvel film when i watch the marvel films i don't go oh man can't really have a robot suit this is dumb like what would right. it really be like if there was a man with a robot suit right so it, <laughs> i i'm I'm watching these films going like, cool, these people are these people. The wife is clairvoyant. Uh, the husband is a dude, <laughs> right? Like I, I'm, he's a man capable of an exorcism. I am, I am watching these films in the context of the devil is real. Um, this event as I'm watching it is real. Let me buy into and have fun with this world. The same way that when I watch Harry Potter, I know that I can't perform spells, but I watch that show going like, what if I could perform spells? This is pretty right. cool, right? Like, so, so no, I'm, totally. I, I, I don't have that blocker. Um, maybe somebody needs to put a little uh, witch's totem under your bed and make you <laughs> buy into this a little more. <laughs> yeah. No, it, and it isn't that I need to buy into it. It's so like either I can be terrified by the reality that they present I can be made to be scared because it is hinting to me that the real world might be as scary as the thing I'm watching. Or you can give me an entertaining story, an entertaining character study, an entertaining something. And I feel like the other two Conjuring movies manage to do a combo of those things. They do something, right? They creep me out. They put me in an amusement park that is fun to watch. Like the Conjuring 2, the roller coaster is enjoyable. I get it. There's a lot of creepy things happening and the devil made me do it like it isn't harry potter because it doesn't make me care about them enough to want to see them succeed and it doesn't build the world enough to make me enjoy the mechanics of it like in a world where there are demons but there are also witches and places are haunted but people can be haunted but objects that are cursed can make the haunting point at you and they can warg into each other but only if they know they're being war like there's not enough there there and when the rules don't mean anything then i can't follow the ridiculous story that they're trying to present to me so so first of all she's not a witch she's an occultist um so we'll just put that out there to a little separation 
and the double warging is a not actually warging it is a clairvoyant seeing through the eyes of somebody who is trying to fuck with them right sure <laughs> she does kind of control though like, she she uses do we, uh, we, uh, this is another thing we have to talk about in spoilers <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about it okay the closest harry potter connection is harry potter his scar connects him to voldemort and in later harry potter series he uses that to see through voldemort's eyes and it helps him like preempt some bad thing that's going to happen and then he learns voldemort can do the same thing to him like yeah, I would. That's, that's I guess that is a warging. So, so, <laughs> so what, what, what's happening in this film is not warging. It is the last Jedi, or not the last Jedi, the the, the middle Jedi movie sure, of the newest yeah. ones, where they are seeing each other through the Force. They are they're astrally it's projecting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I take it back. They're not warging. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they're Force projecting. Get it right. I think she wargs into corpses. I think that's fair. I mean, she she's not puppeting the corpses. She is commanding the corpses. Hmm. It might might be a small distinction to you, but I think she is. Yeah. To to the real wargers out there, it makes all the difference. <laughs> yeah. Well, no one's holding the door of of the, of the crematorium. <laughs> Sorry, uh, before. I talk about how dumb some of the character moments in this movie are, where they talk about love being their strength and not their weakness and all that shit. I want to know how you felt about this movie. <laughs> all right. Um, well, let's back all the way back up to the beginning of, of some of the things that you kind of brought up. Um, so, so one of the first points that you brought up was talking about how this is theoretically about this trial, but none of this film takes place in the courtroom like, you see him stand up and say not guilty, and then you see the verdict right at the end of the film. And one of the things this film is theoretically trying to sell to us is, how would demonic possession work in a courtroom? <laughs> like, how, how, how would that go? Um, this film isn't actually interested in, in tackling that. It's just using the real-life court defense that was originally proposed as the jumping-off point for its own story. But I did want to say for you, Stephen, over the years, I've brought up this film multiple times um, in this podcast, but I'm going to bring it up again now because this is like the first time it directly applies. Um, I mean, the other times it applied to contextually, but anyways, so there's a little film called The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which I would highly suggest if you haven't seen it, you do check it out because that story literally is uh, this family believe their daughter was possessed. They try to perform an exorcism on her she dies and now the family is suing the church and they hire a priest to defend uh they hire a priest to argue that there's no such thing as possession and they hire a skeptic to argue that the that the girl was possessed um and it is it it is it is the courtroom like you see them making arguments back and forth and you spend time in the courtroom and then you see flashbacks to what other people remember happening of all the things that led up to the exorcism. Um, and it is a very compelling film. Um, the director has subtle nods in the opening of the film to what he believes actually took place, um, uh, which I love just the existence of that. Um, and then I, I think it's just a really, it's a really, really interesting film that does exactly what you wanted this film to do. Um, so yeah. 
Highly recommend that one. I, I did think about that movie when I was watching this because I remember you recommending it before. And I was like, that sounds like the movie I would have preferred to watch. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so I, I have those same complaints about this film because, as you said, it is interesting. Like, I didn't I didn't have the extra complaint of being like, yo, these hucksters are like literally trying to get somebody off a of murder. Um, but but I, I was definitely kind of sad that we don't spend it like, there's the whole line from the trailer when he's like look in the courtroom you proclaim the existence of god every time you swear a witness in on the stand how like maybe for once we can talk about maybe there's the devil exists um i um you know you, you joked <laughs> while the trailer was going on nobody hears it because it'll be edited out but like um you you definitely made a comment about that line but that line is the only mention of that idea in this entire film. Like you, you would hope that right. there would be more time, uh, witnesses trying to do different stuff. Um, like anything more in the courtroom that could, that, that this film could lean on, but that's not there. I dislike that. The more marvelly stuff in this film, I actually kind of enjoy. Um, I, <laughs> I actually like the departure from the series that this film is doing because it's, this film is in a way, and what we can talk about it more in spoilers, but th this film has taken two films to make them superheroes, and then it introduces its own kryptonite. It, it limits the power of, right. of, of the clairvoyancy. It limits the, I don't know, masculine energy of, <laughs> of Ed, I guess. Um, you know, it, it, it does things to limit their ability to be who they are, to blind them from the reality of what is actually happening to them. And it makes them mortals for the first time. And they have to spend the whole film getting their powers back. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I, I really, really like that concept of how they treated these characters in this film. Sure. Maybe we don't like the real Warrens in real life. Um, but I think that these characters who I have followed over the course of these three films, I really, really like this progression for them. Um, I also do like just the idea of this, uh, you know, occult action, witchcraft, uh, voodoo, whatever we want to call it that is happening. It does add a new element to where, you know, in the past, uh, these, what, what's the word they, they use? Like, what is it? something, something, an entity, uh, non something or other entity, right? What's the, what's the term that means, mm -hmm. like, it's not a ghost. It's a demonic force that's never walked on this planet before. Um, yeah, I, I don't remember what they call it, but I... Yeah, I forget the word, but the, but the series has been dealing with those. And those things have one goal, or technically it's two goals. It's a, it's a two-part, one goal. It's torment people, and then eventually arrive at the ability to possess. Um, they are generally located around one location. They attach themselves to one person, and then they are bound to that person. Wherever they go, they can use the surrounding environment to torment them, but they're stuck with them and stuck by the bounds of wherever location they are. This film introduces what if there was a hyper-intelligent uh, force that was causing the things to happen and could reach out and affect multiple people in multiple ways, all to the, it, I mean, it, it, yes, it, it is basically witchcraft, right? Like it's, it's sure. It's not, it's not, it's not levitation spells. It's not fixing glasses with the wave of a wand. It's not Avada Kedavra or whatever, it, but it is, it is a, a force that nobody has had to deal with 
yet in this series. I think it is literally witchcraft, and I think you're thinking too Harry Potter about it. I think an occultist doing enchantments and rituals to enact changes in the physical world is witchcraft. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I said. I said, it, I said it is essentially witchcraft, but it's not like... Right. It's not it's not the joking witchcraft that you were saying it was before, but it, but it is it is in fact witchcraft. But like I really really liked the idea of how does this how does this thing or person think about what I'm going to do with the abilities that I have? How do the people who are being affected by it respond to that? And then as our characters begin to learn more and more about what is actually happening, how like it it's the other films are scary because there's an unknown force who is trying to latch on to the characters that we're following. In this one, what is scary is the power that they now understand they were against and how literally anything could be... I mean, it's the equivalent to, uh, you know, in, in the Mitchells versus the Machines, right? Like, when the shit goes crazy, like, anything that is a machine could now be an enemy, right? There, there, there's a sense yep. that in this, like, just things anywhere, like, anything you can think of doing, if, I mean nobody's crossing a rope bridge in this film but like if i knew steven was crossing a roach rope bridge and i wanted to hurt him i could do a little spell that makes the rope bridge unravel and then he falls right Right. this can become final destination it can become anything now <laughs> yeah i mean how do we know that in the final destination films the occultist wasn't the one making everything happen <laughs> how do we know eagle eye didn't have an occultist behind the scenes that was controlling everything <laughs> Uh, it wasn't drones. It was just somebody with clairvoyancy. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I, I, I found that uh, really, really compelling. And then there's also there's also a fun thing at play here with um, by the time we learn what the actual three stages are that the occultist wants to achieve, there can still be multiple things that facilitate those three stages, right? Like the obvious ones are and then the other like you know like i'm trying to like, pantomime right, just sure. even like there's the obvious thing of like it's this this then this but then we could swap out two and three for any number of things yep. in this film and so so it means like the it, it, it's kind of like a it's like a it's like a, <laughs> a gnarly escape room that the characters are now in and they constantly mm -hmm. have to like figure out what the next step is and be try to be one step ahead of somebody who has literally all the power and all the information and and all that stuff. So I, I found the film uh, fun in a different way than the other two, but I, I enjoyed this new world and also the ramifications of like in the other films you you exercise the demon and then all the wind dies down and the world's done right this film has very different ramifications for if you can try to stop one particular aspect of of, of what's going on right so I, I thought i thought it was a it was a visually arresting um resolve to what's going on in this film i think yeah i like I hear you. I hear the fun of it and definitely the the superhero aspect of it could be enjoyable, right? Like it, it is doing all the tropes. It you know like you said, it's established the character and now it is finding a synthetic way for the character to not have its power so that we can see them fumble to get it back and learn who they are in spite of that power and then when they finally get it back at the end, it, you know, it, it is doing all the things that you do when you're rooting for a superhero. Yeah. Um I just feel like the 
the actual storyline of what Ed and Lorraine do over the course of this movie is it doesn't have that joy of like, oh, where are they going to go next? How do these pieces connect? Aha, I get it. This is what it is. It, it just felt like a few disconnected set pieces for me. It didn't feel like it built up into a journey that I thought was fun to watch. Um, like, it didn't feel like a thing where you could have predicted point B placed based on seeing point A, or like you might have shared some rising dread with them as you went through it. Like, like I don't know, it felt like something was missing to make it have that spark, that like fun element of watching them go through a thing with you. And it felt more like we're just going to have these set pieces. We are going to use the bag of tricks that we used in the first couple movies, but without the timing or the camera or any of the things that would typically make it scary. Like a, a good example that someone else, I, I think it was AA Dowd, like someone pointed to the waterbed scene in the first two movies, that waterbed scene would have been stretched for like five minutes and it would have been scary as hell because you would you would be watching it just get worse and worse and worse and it would be like you would milk that shit and in this movie it is like 30 seconds and then all the big bads are revealed already and it, it's just like not interested in I, it, it just feels like the it, it isn't having as much fun with it as as I felt like the other movies were having and I don't know if that just means that like James Wan his visual style is really important to me to make it be a fun roller coaster rather than a like, oh, I can see that's just like a nail. That's just the, you know, two pieces of steel screwed together. I get it. Of course, it does a corkscrew here. No big deal. You know, like I, I can't, I can't ignore the trees for the forest anymore because it just doesn't have that like spark that lets me forget what I'm watching. And yeah. I don't know what that is, but I just felt like this movie did not have the spark to make their their journey be fun or the set pieces they put me through to be enjoyable on their own. Yeah, like I, I think so what, what, what you're picking up on is that this film did exactly what it wanted it to do, what it wanted to do. But like you just don't like what it did, because basically it, right. je it jettisons the side story so that the intro to this film can be showing us the big bad and showing us all the things. And then that, that mm -hmm. quick look back to that waterbed scene is a flashback as another character like recounts a gnarly thing that happened leading up to the possession of the child who we were already passed by the time this conversation right. was being had. So it's like this film is, is more concerned with the Warrens versus the occultists and not with the entities at play. The entities are just pawns in a larger game, which now that I'm saying that out loud, I think is a literal line from this movie somewhere. Yeah, I think uh, so. <laughs> um, in The Conjuring 2, at least, they talk about pawns. I don't, I don't know in this one if they do. Yeah, so, so th this film is like, hey, let's quickly get an initial round of scary out because this film is not going to have that slow build of progression. Those three things, which I forget the words, but it's like, fuck with somebody for a long time, wear them down, and then possess them. This film is not going to have those three things because this isn't a traditional uh, possession story. This is a, a uh, witchcraft-style possession story, and the film is, is not going to have this slow wearing down of the characters because the characters are going to be on, as you said, like they're, these characters are in Fast 9. These characters aren't in Fast and Furious. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I will say one one tool that it uses well that I wish I could have seen how James Wan would have used it is a timed light switch. I think that is a great addition to the horror movie bag of tricks. What, what's <laughs> would be happy to see that used again. What's really funny is, I mean, the, the, you know, those light switches are usually in like locker rooms and different places like mm-hmm. that. Um, but as soon as he flips on that time light switch, I was like, why would you ever worry about that sort of thing? Like, like it, I, I knew exactly what was going to happen because I've definitely been in places <laughs> where I yeah. didn't draw that dial long enough. Um, so it, it was kind of funny because I, I literally said something to Jamie <laughs> As, as it was happening, they were like, oh, yep, yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sweet. Uh, well, it sounded like we wanted to have a little bit of spoiler section so that we can talk more freely about some of the things that you brought up. Um, but for now, Stephen, let's get to our verdicts for this film. If you were going to give us a must-see, a record with a caveat, wait for rental, pass with a caveat, or must avoid, what would you give it? I think I have to give this one a pass with a caveat. Um, I... Maybe I'm just, it's recency bias. I'm like, I watched it right after the first Conjuring, which I would give probably a must see or at least a recommend with a caveat. Like, I thought that was a really well done horror movie. The Conjuring 2, I would probably also give like a recommend with a caveat. Like, I watched two really good, I think, versions of this. And The Conjuring the Devil made me do it. It zigged instead of zagged, but it didn't do the obvious thing to me, which was like veer into procedural territory or veer into the real world or puncture into the mythology a little bit more. It went in the, we're going to expand the universe. We're going to make our superheroes battle bigger and badder things. And we're going to open up more possibilities of sequels. Um, And that would be totally fun if I found it to be a thrilling ride. And because the thrills didn't work for me, it just felt unnecessary. It's like, like I'm watching the Warcraft movie or something. It's like, okay, (laughs) what are the rules? There are corpses and curses and you got to get to the witch before. Okay. All right. Fine. Oh, and you're super Christian. Okay, cool. It's like, God's not dead meets Warcraft. Like, like, I don't know. It just, there wasn't a lot left for me to have fun with in this movie. And I, I just thought it took away the ingredients that I enjoyed and it replaced them with stuff that I didn't really care about. Yeah. So it, it sounds like this is not, it's probably not the case, but I'll ask it just for funsies anyways. If I had done like a schnazy cut of this film and removed the court case um, from the film and it wasn't couched around that, would it have escalated at all? Or are you still sort of uh, brought down by like Warrens in the previous films versus the Warrens here? It's a good question. I don't I don't know because I feel like the Schnazy cut doesn't tell you enough about the main story to feel like a complete narrative. Like the Schnazy cut is like someone solving the zodiac mystery without like <laughs> 45 minutes of the movie like well, like it feels like it is missing something i mean you you could you could leave in the fact that he does get arrested and that he is on trial mm-hmm. for murder because he is very like that character is very much like hey like i came to with blood on my hands i clearly did it i probably didn't intend to but i definitely did it because I I'm the one that stabbed him 26 times. So like, and also I literally encouraged the demons (laughs) (laughs) 
interim, and then I just didn't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, but Ed knew. Ed knew. Yeah, Ed knew. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like I think there's a way where you could still have the conversations in the booking room where like she's like, I know Arnie, that's not Arnie. Um, and <laughs> you know what I mean? Like those could all be there. You just don't have the scenes of the Warrens saying like, hey, I think the devil did it. Um, mm -hmm. and then, and then you could get enough information to know sort of what's going on with the kid. Um, but yeah, just, which is curious. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it would do for me. I do just want to point out though, th this new universe suffers from some of the same things the Marvel universe does, including this version of where, this version of where the fuck was Captain Marvel, during xyz is like where is god in all this like literally he can't <laughs> he can't stop like one person with you know like a cow head or whatever <laughs> what what planet is he on like fighting back an invasion well, steven just got struck by lightning <laughs> yeah he's he, he's leaving it to the hawkeye and you know <laughs> to solve it for him <laughs> uh, i mean God is a gambling man. <laughs> he, he he is like I, I believe in old Ed Ed and Lorraine. Like, because you were literally saying like, what if the bad guy were actually like one intelligent force pulling the strings? And it's like, man, I wish the good guys had one of those. <laughs> uh, touche, Stephen. Touche. That's the final frontier when this movie fully extends into like this franchise will ascend into left behind territory. And the last like conjuring series is just going to be like God and Jesus battling the horns of, of hell. <laughs> just completely forget all about the main characters. Uh, that would be funny if the rapture happens and the Warrens are just down on earth going like, damn it. <laughs> Should have been Protestant. All right. Well, Stephen. As I've mentioned, I did not have as many problems with the, this film as you, and I actually really, really enjoyed the ridiculous places that this film goes. So I'm actually going to give this a recommend with a caveat, um, which puts it rating-wise for me on par with The First Conjuring, um, but, uh, but not necessarily quality-wise. But, I, but I, I enjoyed this as the, um, we'll call it for now, the end to this trilogy of films. <laughs> hmm. Cool. Um, well, that is our review of The Conjuring. The Devil Made Me Do It. Um, we are going to have that little uh, spoiler section, but for now, Stephen, for the people who don't want to stick around for spoilers, if people want to find you throughout the week, where can they do that? Uh, people can find me at twitter.com slash sdavidmiller or sdavidmiller.com. People can find me at ChristopherInRealLife.com or Twitter.com slash ChristopherIRL. You can find the podcast over at TheSpoilerWarning.com where you can get a bunch of the back episodes of the show. You can subscribe to the show um, in... Overcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. If you want to know the episodes go live, you can follow us at twitter.com slash spoiler warning, facebook.com slash the spoiler warning, or instagram.com slash the spoiler warning. If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can send an email to fans at the spoiler warning.com, or you can use the contact form on our site. Music for this episode will come from the soundtrack to The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. So hopefully you are enjoying that. Um, that music is playing right now. It is going to fade up. And when that music fades out, 
we'll be in the middle of a spoiler seance where we are going to be conjuring forth spoilers from this third film in the series. And uh, you better watch out because those spoilers could go into anybody who's listening and mm-hmm. who knows what could happen. Somebody could get stabbed 26 times. Someone could break a table. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye. Bye. All right, so we are back. This is spoiler territory. It's the after part of a review of The Conjuring. The devil made me do it. And here, uh, the devil is in the details. And it's going to make me do it in that I'm going to have to do defend this film against Steven now that we can talk openly about all the things in this film. So, Steven, take it away. Yeah, okay. Well, so first, mild spoiler that does not hit any of the mechanism you want to talk about. But I just want to say that um, the priest former priest that they visit to get information about the occult and what might be happening to them. Yeah. Like that actor, John Noble, they literally picked like the creepiest looking person (laughs) in the world to be a priest in a dark room. Yeah. And it was so funny when they first walk up to him and I was like, he is either the bad guy or he is covering up for the bad guy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and I, I thought that was really funny because they're just like having a normal conversation with like the world's shadiest man in the world. Yeah. Well, Steven, one day you're going to be that old and you might look that shady. So, yeah, I mean, it just clearly Lorraine's clairvoyance was not working in that moment if she did not sense something was off in that room. <laughs> <laughs> well, she hadn't touched anything yet because she was scared yeah, that... to go down there. No, she did sense something was off, right? She's like, I don't want to go down there, Ed. But... Yeah, you're right. You're right. She did. She did feel that. Yeah. But she she went anyway. Yeah. She had to progress the story forward. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so let's see. The the two routes we were going to go is one thing is I I feel like the lore is very muddy in terms of how the spiritual world works here, where people get possessed and they are demonic influences. But in this case, a person curses people and locations have demons nearby or people get temporarily possessed while the person who is doing the occult is pulling the string. Like, I feel like the rules don't make sense. And I don't know if you felt that they did. So they I mean, they they make enough sense, if that makes sense to me. Um, So so in normal situations, an entity exists in a place a person comes in contact with it, that thing latches onto them, torments them, it feeds off that torment, and then eventually can try to take possession of that individual. Um, in this case, the occultist has literally sold her soul to the devil, or a devil, or a, a demon, made a, a, a pact um, for her soul to a demon for which she's been bestowed this power. Um, she has the ability to take temporary possession of individuals by shortcutting that whole latch on torment process by burying a witch's totem um, on the premises, which is used as like the conduit. So it's like, it's like a signal booster, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, that is sort of the method by which she can possess people. But then she also seems to have just like 
other spell things where like when she reanimates the corpse in the morgue, she is not like possessing the thing so much as driving it as a mindless thing, right? Like it, 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 it wakes up, but it's not really actively under her control. She issues commands like charge that man, right? And it runs right. at the man. And then as soon as that connection is broken, um, the, the reverse warging, as you called it, um, she basically is like, uh, okay, boom, that's gone. Um, and then it disconnects. So it's, it's like there are, there are moments where she can take it over. Um, and that's sort of, of that. To me, that was enough for me to go like, eh, sure, I can buy that happening in the world in which all this <laughs> exists. Yeah. So let's talk about the trial. The the premise of the movie, which, as you mentioned, is not really what the movie is interested in. Yeah. I should watch Exorcism of Emily Rose if I want that procedural instead. Um, but the premise is this guy, Arnie, has openly invited a demon to possess him to stop this, you know, little kid from being possessed instead goes on to live his life and then murder someone and now is being tried for murder and the Warrens are trying to help him prove his innocence or prove that he was under demonic possession during. Yeah. One thing I don't know, and I don't know if in your research you uncovered this at all, is he was found guilty, but it was guilty of first-degree manslaughter, which is like a lesser charge by quite a bit than first degree murder. Um, and I don't know if the way this cast into doubt intent by bringing supernatural forces got him on that lesser charge or, or not. So I don't know if that is the case that didn't come up in like the few little articles that like fact or fiction type articles that I read. Um, I also am not a lawyer, um, but I've watched a lot of law programming. <laughs> I, I do wonder if, the like because the Warrens actually tried to possess this trial like they weren't actually there at the start of it they sort of like glommed onto it as an opportunity to like push their message or whatever their hucksterism as you would call it um <laughs> um but I, I I wonder if it was one of those cases where eventually they plead out like I'll admit to doing this for a lesser <laughs> charge or something like that or because because there was probably enough of the witnesses who are like, he's not like this. He's always been totally normal. He just suddenly attacked this guy. He seemed crazy to us. Like it, 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 it might've just been one of those cases where like there was no premeditation. Um, it was just a weird, sudden violent act that nobody can explain. So they gave a manslaughter. Yeah. Because this is my, my universe brain in terms of the, different ethical dilemmas I had. One way that it comes full circle is the the most likely skeptical explanation for things that people think are demonic possession, paranormal activity, is various forms of physical or mental illness. Yeah. Right. Like uh people foaming at the mouth and writhing violently, you know, the writhing violently can be uh, epilepsy. Like uh, there's a general belief that a lot of things that people attributed to demonic possession in the old days were really epileptic people having seizures. Um, there are people who have multiple personalities. 
talking in a different voice, acting as if they were someone completely different, that can clearly be schizophrenia or like manic depressiveness or, you know, there, there are things that can explain the behavior that people attribute to the demonic. Yeah. And the same me that resents the idea that a couple would argue for demons to get someone a lighter sentence does believe that justice should be restorative and people that are struggling with mental issues probably there is no reason to lock them up for the rest of their lives because of a thing that they did while they were in a you know fragile mental state or in a manic state of some sort yeah and so my full 360 belief is that maybe i want this to be the outcome for most trials where it isn't like the person <laughs> um <laughs> Basically, it made me think, I don't know what I actually want out of a murder trial. Yeah. Because I also think in a world without demonic possession, I still don't want people to be locked up for all time based on a thing that made no sense that they did in a bizarre, impulsive moment that they can't explain. Because the point of all this justice is supposed to be to protect people, not to be like punitive forever, you know? Um so anyway, I thought that was, that was like a fun, weird thing I was thinking about while the movie was happening. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this film definitely is not interested in <laughs> posing that question. It's a thing that you uh, that you kind of came up with on your own. But yeah, it is. It is. I mean, yeah. So there's a couple ways to think about it. And now we're not even talking about the movie anymore. We're just like shooting the shit. Um, but like, there's a couple right. ways to think about it. Like anytime somebody has claimed something are they claiming it themselves just to get out of something like even even people who claim insanity now is that just a like right. a yeah i really hated the bitch so now i'm <laughs> like like sort of just like some hillbilly who kills his wife and then like pretends like he was insane the whole time right um or is it people who actually do have an issue and yeah what what do you do in those situations it's it's really hard to know especially if it's something that you can't solve <laughs> so it is yeah well i mean i like i feel like it gets to a very again not the movie just the thought experiment it gets to a very strange thing about the justice system which is that there are if you imagine which i don't but a lot of people do if you imagine that it's about moralizing about like good and evil and punishing evil why is it that some versions of evil, like the impulsive sudden thing that you didn't know you were capable of, the thing you couldn't control in the moment, but maybe a month ago you could have controlled, is seen as lesser than the thing that is innately bad about you that you also didn't ask for. It's just how you are, yeah. you know? Um, and that seems like the crux of the problem is is a person who can do some unimaginably cruel thing to another human that we believe no rational, good-thinking, well-adjusted person would be capable of. Aren't they in the same boat as a person claiming to be possessed? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and, and I mean, cer certain people would probably argue that whether it's alcoholism or drugs or any other number of things, that that is the devil working inside of you. So, like, if you are addicted to drugs and commit some sort of crime in the act of trying to get your next hit like some people would argue that, that was demonic forces that made you commit that crime right maybe not the person who committed the crime 
<laughs> but like some people would look on that situation and make that judgment call themselves. Um, so, because right. because I think in this restorative view of how the justice system maybe ought to be, the very worst thing you could be is a person who believes you were demonically possessed because you have nothing to feel sorry for, you have nothing to fix, you have nothing to work on in yourself. It is some uh, opposite of Deus ex machina, yeah. <laughs> some like devil ex machina that came and made the bad thing happen. And who knows when or if it will ever strike again, but you can't do anything about it, um, which is, I don't know, interesting. It's like the most damning thing is to say, like, evil just came into me and I have no way to prevent it in the future. Yeah, yeah. Cool. That's fun. <laughs> That's all I had to say about that. Um, was there, there there are some other things that you wanted to talk about in spoilers, right? Something specifically related to the plot? I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> I feel like there was two big uh, spoiler things that uh, we did technically say them. So worst case scenario, I can just put an edit right here. <laughs> seems silly and then when you pile in that like it is deifying two people who basically did their damnedest to get a murderer to get to live a happy life with his wife and family <laughs> um, i mean they they didn't though he was sent like spoilers i yeah, guess for I, the, yeah for... I, I don't know i don't know enough to know if like because he was convicted on manslaughter so, and so i don't know if that means they were semi-successful or not so here, here's like, we're going to spoil the real life case. Um, this, so one of the things that's really dumb about the way they put the titles up at the end of the film is a, they skip the trial completely. You just see the results of it. And the title at the end says he served five years in prison. He was sentenced to 20 years, um, mm -hmm. but he got off after, or he got out after five for good behavior. Um, so it like, cause as soon as it was like, he served five years in prison, I was like, Whoa, that's a pretty small sentence to be, like actually convicted of 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 what's going sh should we not talk about this right now <laughs> i don't know i i don't care i mean i the moment i knew we were reviewing this movie i looked up how the court i looked up the court case and okay. so i knew how it was going to end i don't know if that is representative of most people or not yeah like, like, I, I, I don't i don't know how much the ending happen. of i don't know maybe maybe i'll maybe i'll cut it Mm -hmm. and then come back from that and people would have heard what we said before I deleted it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> the magic of editing. This is going to make no sense in the actual, like, chronological way, but... Uh... Yeah, but that, that's why they have to just play this track with the last, like, five minutes of our conversation together, and then they're going to oh, yeah. merge together to make a coherent podcast. Help me. It won't let me leave. <laughs> <laughs> this is my house. But we've always lived here. <laughs> we just see if we can have a whole conversation <laughs> with just... <laughs> like nothing but quotes from scary movies. <laughs> They're here. <laughs> um, but anyways, any any last thoughts, Stephen? Spoilers or not? Um, no, not really. It's it, I still think the universe is fun. I guess I'll say that. If I have to watch horror movies, I would be willing to keep diving down this universe if they keep making more. 
canonical ones, but I will not watch the spinoffs. Gotcha. I don't want creepy dolls in my life. So I, I will say this, though. Um, um, I think this is one of the points that I was kind of bringing up that I tried to be ambiguous for. So at the end of this film, they smash the altar, breaking the curse, and they get to have the Aladdin phenomenal cosmic power itty bitty living space in hell moment um where the occultist starts to approach them as if she's going to do something and ed stands up and he's like yo think twice you you gave your soul to the devil and now he wants a soul and your table's gone so sayonara sucker and then (laughs) she like winces up and then just her soul apparently gets sucked down to hell and she just falls over as like a statuesque, like little, like rotted human person. Um, as far as most of the films, it's like all there, there's chaos everywhere. The person's screaming and then all of a sudden their face turns back to normal and they're like, and it's over. All we had to do was say Valak and, uh, you know, now it's over. Do you feel that this had more of a oomph to it uh, than like... Like this is basically like Thanos snap followed by <laughs> dusting of 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 the the cultist, right? Compared to the normal, like I was angry and now the Hulk is turning into a man. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess I had more oomph, not because of the mechanism. I don't think destroying the altar is that much cooler than any other random thing you do to get rid of the demon. Um but it was nice that she got a little denim wide. She got like a little extra on the side. We got to see like her lose and then we got to see her disappear. Um, but again, I just feel like we didn't know the villain that way. Like I can't even conjure what she looked like in my, in my brain. Yeah. She's just the person manipulating the pawns. And then we see her in the end. And in my head, she kind of like scurries around, but I don't remember. Like she's just there. She <laughs> definitely moves very fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because there's a scene where she's with her, like, her dad, and she's looking at her, he's looking at her, and then he's like, I failed my day, and then she's, like, behind him already, and slitting his throat. So, you, so yeah, so so we can, we can talk about that, too, I guess. Uh, so, you didn't like the switcheroo of, like, so obviously the spell, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bastardize this, because I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's, you need a murder, you need a suicide, and then you need, uh... Like so, so it's a series of sacrifices. One is of another. One is one is a child. One is uh, a, a holy su- man, and one is lovers. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So, so we. Yeah, the Warrens could be the holy man or the lovers. Yeah, yeah. There, there's um, there's like a series of of people who could be at play, and then obviously yeah. because you know for the especially if you're watching these films in in quick succession, you know there's this there's this repeated thing of. Ed is worried about losing Lorraine because she sees something whenever she's warging into stuff. And then Mm -hmm. Lorraine is worried about losing Ed because she's literally seen visions of him die. Um, So he has like a stint in his heart and he won't stop running after demons. (laughs) (laughs) That is true, man. When the demons like, I'll stop your heart and just punches. I, I honestly was like, are they going to kill Ed in the beginning of this movie? That would be gnarly. Yeah. Um, Which they had. Because <laughs> the real Ed died a while before Lorraine, so I feel like that would fit. <laughs> and they still have time in this movie series. There's, yeah. They didn't both die at the end of this movie. Um, but yeah, so... But anyways... Uh, oh yeah, I, 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 I like the way it played with that. Because they, they, this series wants you in those moments to believe that... 
potentially the boy um who's trying to commit who's trying who's trying to kill himself um arnie is potentially the lover of the girl maybe and then the man of god you're definitely supposed to think is going to be ed because right all of the time that we've been watching this like basically it's always been like we are god brought us together we are man and woman of god blah 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 blah. so you're like dude they're gonna totally try to kill ed and then it's like right around the same time that it's revealed that the retired priest is the father of the occultist that you're like oh shit it's gonna be him he's the man of god who's gonna die and then moments later they're like and dead time I thought that yep. was, I thought that was a fun way to play with the worries that you have going on in the film. Yeah, no, I like that. That's one of those things that in a screenplay I'd be like, I see what you did there, and in the movie I'd have found it like a little bit muddy and almost incoherent, so it didn't mean that much to me. All right, well, we can talk about one more visual moment. What do you think about like the floating crucifix trying to stab himself in the throat with a shard of glass? Like that 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 was kind of. That was kind of epic. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. It was cool looking. I just like, the stakes weren't there for me. But I get it. It was cool. It was epic. I told you it wasn't a stake. It was a glass shard. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was trying to fold that joke into my original statement too, and I couldn't do it. Um, all right. I don't know what I can do, Stephen, to convince you this movie was cool. <laughs> Did you know that the real... The real Warrens, um, the way you knew they jumped the shark is, among other things, they eventually claimed that they had exercised a werewolf demon from someone. Oh, man. I didn't hear about that one, but it sounds like a spinoff. Hell yeah. (laughs) All right. I think we're probably about done, Stephen. All right. If you can't wait for the spinoff with Horace and Jasper, that's uh, DeVille made me do it. It looks like devil, but it's pronounced devil. <laughs> All right. If you made it this far, thank you, and I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, we will see you in the next review. Take care, and goodbye. Bye.